You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. I'm with Mark Hutchinson, and he's speaking in his role as a BJSM associate editor and author as someone who has great expertise in leg pain, which used to be referred to as shin splints, among other things. Hutch, thanks for joining the podcast. And let's talk about nomenclature. Why is the term leg pain preferable to shin splints? <laughs> well, I think that... Uh it's much, it's, it's, both terms are relatively broad, but um, shin splints is a term that's used by athletes, but it's very, very nonspecific. It, it covers too many specific diagnoses, and so uh, it doesn't really help a clinician treat the problem. You have to be diagnosis-targeted to have a best possible outcome for athletes, and I think shin splints just kind of confuses that issue. At least leg pain tells us what zone we're, we're targeting. And so now at least I'm saying, okay, from the knee to the ankle, this is the area that I'm targeting in terms of pain in that area and what are the common diagnoses. And so uh, I've actually encouraged all of my students and uh, all of my residents uh, never to use the word shin splints and, uh, in terms of a clinical diagnosis, but rather uh, uh, listen to it when your patient presents with it because it's still commonly used in the running population but really translate it to a more medical diagnosis. So let's talk about that runner who has increased their training, they're trying to peak for a major event, and they have persistent leg pain. Take us through the clinical workup. Um, well, first, as, as I, have a, I have my runner come with me, I, I realize that uh, leg pain is a very broad differential diagnosis. There's lots of different things that can cause uh, leg pain, uh, ranging from an old muscle strain, uh, some metabolic issues, dehydration. But really, when I get somebody, when my athletes are coming in with leg pain, I'm actually probably thinking four common diagnoses uh, that I'm going to target key, uh, first. If they don't fit into those packages, then I'm going to expand my differential to all these other things. The four common diagnoses are going to be a stress fracture. It's going to be medial tibial periostitis, basically where the muscles are inserting broadly onto the medial border of the tibia. That gets an irritated, uh, that gets inflamed, or maybe small microfractures in that area, in a very broad area. Popliteal artery entrapment or chronic exertional compartment syndrome. And then based on the history that they're presenting to me in terms of the pain pattern, um, the timing of the pain, do they, they hurt at rest, do they hurt at exertion, the location of pain, and some of their other symptoms, that'll help me target the rest of my workup. Because my workup, once I have this differential diagnosis narrowed, narrowed, generally focuses first on the most likely diagnosis, and then I work away from that. Is there a role for investigation? Uh, imaging studies, uh, uh, as part of my workup for leg pain, I will routinely have plain radiographs, AP lateral and obliques, um, mainly because in general they're inexpensive. Um, but those, those, I, my imaging doesn't come in um, uh, directly. Um, my imaging comes in more often to confirm the diagnosis. My general pattern as a clinician is always to get a good history that's going to really narrow my diagnosis just by the story that they're telling me, especially with leg pain. Um, and it's the history pattern that's going to be most likely to tell me what my diagnosis is. 
And then physical examination becomes very, very important with all of my patients with leg pain. And I'll do that again before I ever look at an x-ray. My physical examination uh, for the lower extremity includes making sure that there's no radiation from the back, the distal neurovascular evaluation is intact. But as I'm targeting these four common diagnoses, what I'm going to do is I'm going to palpate along the medial border of the tibia, and I'm going to actually feel for swelling uh, or focal areas of pain. If they have a focal area of pain, that when I push down and I can cover it with one, with one thumb or directly on the bone, I'm probably thinking about a stress fracture. If they have a broader area of pain on the posterior medial border of the tibia, then I'm worried about medial tibial periostitis. If they actually hurt not over the bone at all, that's just not their area, they hurt really over the anterior lateral aspect and the muscle soft tissues over the anterior compartment or lateral compartment, then I may be worried about uh, a compartment syndrome. And for me, for most of the athletes, this is exactly how I look at it. If they have anterior lateral muscular pain in those compartments, I'm really thinking exertional compartment syndrome. If their pain is deep and posterior, yes, I could have compartment syndrome, but that's when I start introducing my differential diagnosis of popliteal artery entrapment syndrome. Uh, and then part of my examination, uh, as I clarify that physically, is I will check pulses, both dorsal pedal and posterior tibial pulses, and then I'll have the patient actively plantar flex or dorsiflex. Uh, and I'm trying to palpate to see if I can feel the, the pulses diminish with those active activities. Um, now, I will admit that uh, uh, your hands have to be very sensitive to pick that up. Uh, in my office, we actually have a, a Doppler ultrasound. And uh, uh, more frequently, I'll put the Doppler right on there during active plantar flexion and dorsiflexion to really see if I can see the flow decrease with those active activities. And there is a ultrasound podcast with Kim Harmon and others. And in BJSM, we see that ultrasound is an important office tool, really, the office stethoscope. So that will be accessible to some of our listeners, Mark. So having differentiated pop popliteal artery entrapment syndrome, um, deep chronic compartment syndrome as best you can clinically. Um, let's talk about when the indication for investigating compartment pressure syndrome is with compartment pressure testing. How do you know when to do that and how should you do it? Sure. Well, for now, now as we've kind of had our story, the story is going to be, or the classic story is going to be our runner who has no pain at rest, uh, uh, yet with activities, five to ten minutes into their run, they start feeling pressure build up into the anterior lateral aspect of their leg. It may build up so much that it hurts, they have to stop running. Occasionally it may lead to numbness over the dorsal aspect of their foot, or they may even start dragging their foot so they start uh, because the muscle weakness goes on. And part of that story should be is that when they stop, within about ten minutes, it goes away. So that story tells me exertional compartment syndrome, and that's my working diagnosis until proven otherwise. Based on that, um, I will uh, make sure nothing else is going on, a stress fracture or something else that could contribute some swelling or something that may have put this exertional compartment syndrome uh, 
made it more symptomatic. But bottom line is when I hear that story, I'm going to probably be performing my exertional compartment pressure tests. Um, there are different uh, mechanisms of accomplishing that. Uh, my, I think the most simple and easy is to use an uh, instrumented device that's handheld. Uh, it's uh, simple. It's straightforward. The one that I use is, is my, it was created by a, a striker. There are a couple of devices out there and available. And what I'll do is for me, I check all four compartments in both legs in every patient pre and post exertion. And so I'll put them at rest. Uh, the needle that goes into the compartment is fairly large. And so I will uh, prepare uh, with betadine all of the poke areas that I'm going to uh, introduce the needle. I will numb that area up, including skin and subcutaneous tissue. But I can't numb up the fascia and I can't numb up the compartment because then I would be throwing off my measurements. Uh, and then uh, I will, from the lateral side of the leg, right at the level of the refet between the anterior and lateral compartments, I will introduce my compartment pressure test or then the needle into the anterior compartment. I will uh, assess the measurement there. I will re-aim it into the lateral compartment, assess the pressure at that site, and then I will go on to the medial aspect of the leg. And there I will be just posterior to the medial border of the tibia, which allows me to aim beneath the tibia into the deep compartment, and then straight posteriorly into the superficial compartment. And I'll record all those measurements at rest, both legs. Then I will have the athlete go get things irritated. We have a treadmill. I've had people run stairs. I had a gymnast perform her routine uh, because that seemed to be the only thing that would get things stirred up. Uh, and what I asked them to do is I asked them to really get it stirred up. So go run into the pain. Once they have the pain, run into the pain for about five minutes. I really want the pressures elevated. Then they'll come back to the same room that I did the, the first part of the test, and I will immediately uh, perform the second test, reintroduce the needles into the same spots, and reassess the pressures. It's very important that you may have a busy clinic going on. You'll have one of your assistants go run the patients on the treadmill. You need to break away from anything else you're doing, and right when they come back, reassess the pressures immediately after running so you see if they're high or not. Some of my colleagues will then do delayed pressure measurements 10 minutes later uh, and then see if things have continued to uh, decrease over time. Um, I don't find those essential to uh, make the diagnosis. I just look for pre-exertion and post-exertion measurements. Pre-exertion measurements, um, normal is from 0 to 10. Abnormal at rest is something over 20 to 25. Um, the, that area between 10 and 20, which I call the teenagers, um, is very hard to make the diagnosis. I won't treat people in that range. Um, I just... I just pay attention to that range. Um, and then after exertion, positive measurements are when they are absolutely over 25 to 30 or jumped up more than 10 compared to their pre-exertion measurements. If they meet those criteria, then they've made, then I've confirmed the diagnosis of exertional compartment syndrome. And assuming they have no other associated factors that might be contributing to the increasing pressures, they become candidate for surgical release. And 
we'll direct the readers to your paper on that. And then your colleague from Australia, Matt Hislop, has a different view where he's not as aggressive, so as it were, to investigate as many compartments. Do you want to just share those thoughts for us? Oh, yeah. I, and I think I tried to introduce that, at least honestly, that uh, some of my colleagues are clearly what this is not a pleasant test. Um, nobody wants to get poked, and it's a big needle that you're getting poked with. Um, and so uh, the problem is, is that, so some people will say, hey, you're, they were painful in the anterior compartment, so I tested only the anterior compartment, the anterior compartment was elevated, and therefore I did a surgical release of the anterior compartment. Sounds logical. The problem is, is that in my hands, after having done this for 20 years, I have found oftentimes that the anterior compartment would be very high, but the lateral compartment is borderline or moderately high. And if I fail to release it, then that patient comes back later and has a recurrence in the second compartment. And so my goal is if I have to do surgery, I'm only doing surgery once, and I want to know everything that's going on. Uh, in addition, when I started, I traditionally and admittedly was more aggressive. Um, once I made the diagnosis, I released all four compartments in every patient. The problem with that is that when you release the deep compartment and superficial compartments from the medial side, there's a higher risk of complications. There's more bleeding, there's more potential post-operative cellulitis. And so I will do the second measurements to prove that I don't have to do that release. And so I can avoid those risks of the complications. So my, I mean, I, I try to be complete so that my patients never come back and I have no other complications. Uh, Matt Heslop and other people have suggested that uh, multiple pokes increases maybe complication risks. I might hurt somebody permanently, injure a nerve or artery or something like that by by poking them and, and checking these pressures. I'll tell you in 20 years I've never had a complication because of the testing. Um, and so I don't think that that's a major concern. But um, I, do, I do seriously, seriously respect the concern of uh, uh, it's not a friendly test. Patients don't want to be poked that many times. Um, but uh, the reason I lean to testing everything is because I think I have one good shot to make a complete diagnosis, and my patients don't want to come back with a recurrence. And you touched on the surgery itself. It's not one of the most rewarding surgeries in terms of massive success rates. There are recurrences, and you gave one reason why that might occur. What are the tips for surgeons who may not be as experienced as you and who are asked to do these as a one-off or you know, regularly uncommon procedure in various parts of the world? Yeah, actually, I think one, one thing is, is I would say don't be afraid of the surgery. Um, actually, um, I think the surgery has a very high success rate. And, and uh, in my hands, and we've studied this, uh, it's 90 to 95% successful. Uh, uh, there's one study by uh, Lyle McKaylee who suggested that in women that it might be only 85 to 90% successful. But it, if you confirm the diagnosis with elevated pressures and you have no other associated diagnosis, it's a very successful surgery. The, 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 the problem with the surgery, there's a couple. One is complications and the other is misdiagnoses. And so if you had a mildly elevated pressures and you had a stress fracture or medial tibial periostitis or popliteal artery entrapment syndrome that you missed, then by releasing the fascia, you didn't address the other problem, and those problems are going to persist until they're treated. And so you still have to be very clear about the diagnosis because some of these diagnoses can overlap. 
You can have two going on at one time. So you have to look at that carefully. In terms of the complication risk, um, unfortunately, this is one of uh, my higher risk surgeries that I do for complications. Um, uh, I mean, I do a lot of arthroscopy, a lot of knee surgery, and a lot of shoulder surgery. And I think I have more postoperative cellulitis uh, uh, or some wound issues that I have to really pay attention to in this population. And the reason is, is because we can do them through small incisions to release the fascia. But by doing that, there's a lot of dead space and empty space by doing a complete fascia release through small wounds. Um, in that, it's a great place for a hematoma to occur. The hematoma then leads to cellulitis and maybe a wound dehiscence. Because of that, um, and because of that awareness, when I do the surgery, I don't use a tourniquet. I control the blood, uh, any blood loss very, very carefully. The, uh, my, my wounds are completely dry uh, at the time of the, uh, uh, at the closure. There's no oozing, there's no drainage. Um, and then I will be very careful to use uh, a cold therapy afterwards. We'll use compression dressings, uh, all to basically protect the, the, those soft tissues during that early phase. The other, the other risk is um, there are some structures like the superficial perineal nerve that is in, within the surgical site uh, and is at risk of getting injured. The superficial perineal nerve, uh, it has a lot of variations. It can be one nerve. It can have two or three branches. And so if you're not really careful of visualizing it and moving it out of the way, you may catch a branch of it and then leave some numbness on the dorsal aspect of the foot. So my key recommendations for, for uh, surgeons who are going to perform the procedure, know the anatomy, look for the superficial perineal nerve, control their bleeding, use perioperative antibiotics for two or three days afterwards, and I think you'll minimize your risk of complications and you'll still find 90 to 95% of the time these athletes will be back to running uh, endurance activities where they couldn't have done it before but now can because they're not having the symptoms of exertional compartment syndrome. Is fasciotomy enough or should it be fasciectomy? Um, uh, the fasciotomy is simple, it's straightforward, uh, and it is effective 90% of the time. And so I will do a fasciotomy, I will cut the fascia and just release it, and I will not do a fasciectomy. Uh, fasciectomies I do do in revision cases um, uh, uh, as, as needed. So somebody who comes back for whatever reason, they have repeat elevated pressures despite an exertional compartment release, in all honesty, I've never had to do it in my own patient, but in some patients who had had a release by somebody else, which may have not have been complete length or a complete release, um, I have done fasciectomies in those to basically guarantee that I don't have a recurrence. Thanks, Hutch. And one last backup. Um, I should have probably talked about this at the testing part. What sort of training do you need to be able to do those compartment pressure tests and what sort of clinicians provide those services in various parts of the world? Well, I think, I think anybody can. Uh, uh, the, the problem is, is that most people are afraid of it. Um, uh, I, in Chicago, one of the biggest cities in the, the, is the third, third or fourth largest city in the United States, um, I may be the, uh, one of only one or two orthopods that do this test. I have patients coming to me all the time from other famous orthopods just to do this test. I know of a couple of my primary care colleagues that do the test, but it's very simple. 
you really shouldn't be afraid of it. Uh, it's uh, the demonstration is available uh, on video. We've created one through the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons that demonstrates how to use these devices. Uh, it's safe. It's simple. Uh, and in all honesty, you can you can bill for it, uh, and so it, you you can make a little money by doing it. Um, but I don't think you need to be afraid of it. And I think that if you don't do, or if you're not willing to do exertional compartment pressure measurements, then I think a lot of your athletes that are presenting with leg pain, you're missing the diagnosis. Uh, and and so you have to be able to confirm that diagnosis. And either you should be doing it as the clinician who's taking care of the ad athlete, or you should know who you're going to refer to that's willing to do those tests. But it's pretty straightforward, easy to do. I certainly wouldn't be afraid of it. Um, as I said previously, I've never had a complication relative to the exertional compartment pressures. Um, it's not a friendly procedure, i.e. some patients don't like to get stuck with needles. But short of that, I mean, I've, not, I've never had somebody who said, you know, I, I, I bled, I had a compartment syndrome, I got infected, you injured a nerve. I've never had anything like that in 20 years. Hutch, we're out of time, but great talking to you and thanks for shedding light on leg pain. Listeners will also find a complimentary podcast by Andy Franklin Miller relating to some of these issues and we will post the papers, including your papers in BJSM and the one from Matt Hislop on the site, Hutch. Thanks very much. Uh, absolute pleasure working with you uh, once again, uh, Dr. Khan, and, uh, and with working with British Journal of Sports Medicine. Fantastic. And listeners are reminded to follow Twitter, which is at BJSM underscore BMJ, for updates on what we find interesting papers, podcasts, and other sports medicine content. And the BJSM blog is tracked through Twitter, and you can find more material there. So we're aiming to be a resource for sports medicine clinicians all over the world. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com.